Hey, welcome to Old School Guns. This is episode number 70, number 70, and this is the podcast that tells you just like it is. Um, a lot of it is unvarnished, and a lot of it is non-politically correct, so, you know, hang on, here it comes. And so the first thing uh, we've got to talk about today is riots, of course, for the last week. And they've, they've been tailing off, it looks like, the last two days. But there were a lot of riots, you know, triggered by this botched arrest of a guy in Minneapolis where the police, one police officer basically just kind of pressed on this guy's neck, which in one way or another led to his cause of death. Therefore, all kinds of protests come out, and then the protests are being used as a cover by basically uh, anarchists and uh, other kind of agitators to, so they can do their, their violence and destruction of public and private property. And beyond that, that becomes then a cover for looting. So, so there you go. I just find it rather funny. Uh, and I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, you know, and if you've listened to this podcast at all, you've never really heard conspiracy theories on here. But I just think it's very, very funny that here we are in 2020, and it's basically the end of May, early June, before a presidential election, you have a, an incumbent Republican president, Donald Trump, running for re-election, uh, there's a lot of the uh, left wing and even some people in his own party who don't like him. So all of a sudden you have these these riots. Now if you look back at 1992, you had an incumbent Republican president, George H.W. Bush, who really wasn't liked by some members of his party and also, you know, obviously the the, you know, at that time even then they were the radicalized Democratic Party. And right around, it was actually the beginning of May, you had the 1992 L.A. riots. I just find it to be just too much of a coincidence, especially when you look at, you know, since Donald Trump was elected, they tried the Democrat, the radicalized Democrats tried the Russia smear, and it didn't work. And it's really taken down a bunch of their stooges. Um... Strzok, McCabe, Comey, Page, and I'm sure there's there's greater there's others on that list, but their stooges have basically been taken out one by one because this thing exploded in their face. It was wrong and it didn't work. Um, then they tried the bogus impeachment, and Adam Schiff and the the congressional Democrats looked like a bunch of psychopaths because that's what they acted like. They're crazy, illogical, and they acted like psychopaths, and nobody really took that seriously. Maybe maybe their base does, but I'm telling you, people on the right and people in the middle think that it was all a bunch of bullcrap. Then all of a sudden, uh, these riots come up. After the COVID thing, the whole pandemic and all that, Trump performs very, very well, and, and basically is, uh, you know, his, his approval rises, then this, and then these riots. This is not just something that happened. This is not coincidence. This was basically, it, whether it was planned or it was just capitalizing, quote-unquote, on an opportunity, I don't know. But this is not just random. 
and this is not just the work of, of, of just history just kind of playing itself out. This is something that was conceived, encouraged, facilitated, and executed. And uh, the sooner we know that, and the sooner we accept that, the better off we are. So that's kind of what I think about these, these riots. It's, it's also very convoluted how, well, you know, you have to kind of support these riots if you support, you know, kind of law and order and, and equal treatment for everyone and anti-racism and all these other things are kind of, kind of all lumped together. Even to the point where a poor fellow like Drew Brees, who's an NFL quarterback, and I don't, I don't know jack about the NFL. I don't really follow it, frankly, because most of the people in it are not the kind of people that I think are, are very nice people. But Drew Brees is a nice guy. And he basically came out saying, yeah, people have a, should be treated well under the, under the law. Everybody should be treated kind of equally. And, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but... You know, and he kind of came out in, in support of, of, of uh, all that. But he did say, I can't, I don't like, you know, showing disrespect to the flag by kneeling and all this. And he was just excoriated by it, by, by geniuses like LeBron James. LeBron James has the brains of a cucumber. I mean, he is, he is so unintelligent. They can't even give Drew Brees the courtesy of having his own opinion and saying, yeah, you know, for some people, uh, a flag protest and flag disrespect is, is really unacceptable. They can't accept that, but, but everybody is expected to accept their opinions and their judgments on the police and everything else. And, and I will tell you, um, we ask the police to do an extremely difficult job. They handle bad hats and bad characters all day long. And, and some police are better than others. And there are bad policemen. And, you know, in cases where the police have... A, a policeman has made a very, very bad mistake and, or done something very, very bad, there's, there's been consequences. There have been a lot of times where these things have been investigated and the police come up on charges. But that's not really what this is about. What it's about is we ask the police to do a very, very difficult job. And when you don't show support for the police in general and as a whole organization, then all of a sudden it becomes okay for people who are doing what they're doing now, trying to beat up the police, trying to shoot them, trying to do other things. That is what is, what is genuinely unacceptable. So when it comes down to agitators, looters, or the police. I'm coming down on the police's side every trip of the train. Now that doesn't mean that, that I accept every single action that every single policeman ever does, but it does mean that I essentially support the side of good over the forces of evil. And that's what looters and vandals and these other people are. This Antifa, they are evil. They are pure evil. And the people who, there are a lot of people who enable them. And a lot of it is academia on campus. They allow them to, you know, basically operate and recruit in the open. You know, these kind of people who allow that are punks. They're the T 
teachers and instructors who are encouraging other people's kids to go out and do violence and mayhem, but that you notice their kids are never out there. It's never the kids of the university professor or some of these other who are getting arrested. It's these idealists who've been radicalized on campus and, and other places. One of the other places, and I'll call it out, is the Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, they encourage a lot of uh, social disobedience or civil disobedience, I guess is the correct term. And uh, I happen to know some of this firsthand and on the inside. They encourage other people's kids to go out and do some of this stuff and yet their own kids are nowhere near the, the being arrested or anywhere else. So, you know, I got I to gotta tell you that uh, when a church, like the one I just mentioned, where, you know, if, even if you read their stuff, they say you don't have to believe in God to be a member of our church. You can be an agnostic or an atheist. I don't understand how that's a church, but... I do understand that they want to call themselves a church to get to get all the tax benefits and all the other little nonprofit goodies that those kind of organizations um, are entitled to under the law. So I just have to be very, very careful of who's supporting what. Are they, in fact, who and what they say they are? You know, there's been a lot of things of pallets of bricks showing up at places where riots are going to be be held so that you know obviously the rioters have something to throw at the police uh, there's obviously been an organizational effort behind all this and it's um, it's it's very very insidious very insidious but it kind of is up to me to call it out where it is and I, I see that and where that kind of where does that kind of dovetail into the gun culture well obviously <laughs> if you saw the Facebook meme of saying if you ask the question why I need an AR-15 and a 30-round magazine, or I would opine an AK rifle and a 30-round magazine, the answer is on your TV screen every night. So uh, that's one way it touches the gun culture. Another way is these ludicrous, symbolic... Um, Acts of solidarity, and I have to call out. There are two two that I'm going to use as examples. Uh, one is in range TV, which all of a sudden has gone off the air for a week in solidarity with all this and some sort of idiotic blackout deal, you know, whatever all that freaking nonsense is. And the other is forgotten weapons. Now, in range TV is kind of bought into it. Frankly, I've unsubscribed from them. There are a bunch there. That guy Carl Carsada is in my mind. There's something wrong with that dude, and you know I've been kind of feeling this for a while. He's he he has this kind of you know real outsider kind of outlander you know personality, and so I don't really I don't really care for that. Now the other guy, Ian McCollum, he is still putting up content, and it's. His content, it's the apolitical kind of technical examinations of rifles, which I really like, of, of rifles and other guns, but his content is still up and it's still there and it's still, you know, the apolitical, just let's just talk about this. And I, I really like that. I think that is 
very healthy. I think it's mature, and I think it's uh, very, very good. So there's the two. There are the two contrasts for you, and uh, you know, frankly, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to stop putting up content. I don't care if it shows solidarity. I I have no interest in showing solidarity with violence and protests that are used as covers for violence. Um, it's the same objection I have with the media when they go, well, the, pe- the protest was largely peaceful. That's like saying somebody is, well, they're almost pregnant. You know, I mean, they're largely pregnant. No, you're either pregnant or you're not. You're either violent or you're not. You're either peaceful or you're not. Um, you can't say, well, 80% of the people were peaceful. Well, I'm sorry. That means that it was a violent protest because 20% of the people were violent. And there's also an economic, um, an economic challenge to this. Uh, stores in, in Kansas City, the, the protest centered around a place called the Plaza. Upscale, sco- uh, upscale stores, um, to be honest with you, I don't shop there. I don't have the, I don't have the kind of dough to go in there and drop, drop in these places. But other people who make that choice, that is their, that is their deal. Well, I don't think that that should be a place where people protest simply because those are the businesses that they want to loot. And when we're talking about stealing and looting, stealing, looting, and arson are are three different th- three different things that, are, that interconnect with these protests. One is just targets of opportunity: cars broken into, things taken out. The other is the the organized looting that is targeting a store and people showing up with vehicles or large bags going in and putting in high-end items you know a garbage bag full of high-end items be it clothes or watches or any mixture of that kind of stuff you can see in one of these stores yeah that's that represents a, a pretty pretty uh, large haul you know they're not really stealing cash they're, they're stealing things of value and uh, the Property destruction and arson are another thing. To me, an arsonist is attempted murder because when they light something on fire, they almost never know if there's somebody in there. Now, maybe they can determine it with a car, but when you light a building on fire, you don't know if there's somebody in there. So to me, there's an intent that they don't care if there's somebody in there. And that is a... That's attempted murder, and that's where force should be used. And unfortunately, during these protests, what has emboldened them is is the unwillingness of the police to use force. Uh, if I were the police, I would never do two things. There are two things would be absolute that would absolutely never happen. One is I would never abandon a police station to these thugs. Never, never, ever. Dig in, play the Alamo, and frickin' when people start coming in, that's when you use deadly force. Because there's too many things in the police station that if they're stolen, they could be misused. The other thing I would never do is surrender a police car that's got weapons in it. And you saw that in Portland. They, they abandoned a police car, and these guys get in it, and they started taking out. There, were like, uh, there was an AR-15 and, and something else. And there was a security guard went and just came up and snatched the AR-15 away from a guy. And I'll tell you right now, I guarantee that that security guard was a former serviceman. Just I could you could tell by the demeanor you could tell by the way he handled himself 
that to me looked like a former infantry guy who was probably, you know, probably got out and, and is uh, pulling some sort of security or, or some sort of VIP protection or something. But he knew that that weapon should not and could not fall into the wrong hands. And he went up there at personal risk to himself, and, and he was armed too. And I have no doubt that if somebody had tried to come up, he, he would have hit him. He would have smoked him. So there are some, some bright spots, and, you know, I just don't believe in this strategy. Well, you just let them riot, and then after three or four or five days, it just kind of quells and, and, and kind of goes away. Well, I just don't really, I just don't really believe that's a good strategy. I think you confront, you confront evil with force. You confront that anarchist violence, you, you do it with force, and, uh, I think that uh, just allowing people to burn things, including a historic church uh, in Washington, D.C., museums in Richmond, Virginia, all these kind of things, allowing them to destroy that is is unconscionable and should not be allowed. And uh, I think there should be a prison sentence when somebody's caught defacing a war memorial or some other public, public uh, statue or memorial. You know, I don't care if they're painting on it. They can spend a year in jail. They can spend a year in jail. And uh, it should be a felony. It, it should be a felony that sticks with them and messes them up for at least part of the rest of their life. Okay, one of the questions I got is, can you explain further why the U.S. military may implode? And uh, I, I'm not saying that it's absolutely going to. I'm just saying the conditions are there. And part of these conditions we talked about in, in previous podcasts, and one of them was, well, you know, they've, they've allowed every MOS, military occupation specialty, uh, they've opened it all up to females, including, you know, infantry, armor, artillery, um, you know, special operations and all the rest of this. It used to be, in my day, that there were only certain places women could go, and that was really for their own protection. And so, I guess we've decided that women don't need to be protected, so we're going to place them in positions where they go into harm's way, even though that as a group of people they have a much higher, they, they have about two-thirds of the body strength of a man. It's just... And these are generalities, I know, but you stretch this across a spectrum of people. The larger your sample of people, the more these kind of come true. They also have a much higher, at least one-third higher rate of injury when they're engaged in, in heavy physical activities. And we found, it's in Iraq, they, they won't really publish this, but women take a disproportionately high percentage of casualties. And that's actually happened in the Second World War also. Uh, the Soviet Union uh, had manpower problems and essentially started solving that by incorporating women. And you've, you've seen you know the female snipers and, and fighter pilots and all those things. And it's not that they're... they're not courageous people, not good people, and all that. It's just that because of the physical differences between men and women, they have a much greater chance of becoming a casualty or getting injured or something else bad happening to them. So I, I would say that's that's created a condition 
where our force has yet another variable to compensate for. The other things are the loss of esprit de corps. Uh, there are there is an esprit de corps factor in especially elite units that hey it's all male you've really got to um, be one of the top five percent of males or whatever to get into this thing and when they lower the standards so that they can have female participation that will erode the esprit de corps it just does um, you know you can argue that all day long if men and women are truly equal as I said before where are the women in the NFL the NBA Major League Baseball hockey where are they and the answer is they're not there because they're not physically equal and that's not a bad thing that's not a bad thing it just shows that it just is that way and there are other opportunities there are a lot of other great opportunities for people to serve but the more pressing problem rather than the inclusion of of females into places where they're probably hist where they historically and and just kind of physiologically probably should not be is the kind of corporation mentality that our our military has adopted since World War II it's gradually gone that way you know a, an officer who is kind of brash like MacArthur or Patton or as even some of these other ones um, you know they can't get promoted today they they can't if we ha if we have those guys if one of those guys kind of came in in 1990 he wouldn't have lasted probably even to retirement and if he did last to retirement he would have retired as a major or a lieutenant colonel or something uh, marginalized and not in the general officer ranks because to get to the general officer ranks there's a couple different dynamics in play one of them is to be a complete corporate yes man which is which is what these generals have become look at look at this look at that worm mattis you know no personal integrity there here he's trying to rip on trump for for this uh business about george floyd i mean come on come on mattis after eight years of obama where you had the ferguson <laughs> riots and all this other kind of the the uh what was the other thing? The Trayvon Martin deal? You're going to really bag on Trump, who's had a an excellent record of trying to help disadvantaged communities through employment and opportunity. So it shows you the guy's a no-integrity liar. He really is. I, either that or he's so completely delusional that he never should have been a general, never should have been a secretary of defense, probably never should have been uh, anything except an outpatient at a mental clinic. Then you have this this other clown who was on the TV the other day, this Esper guy, who's, I guess he's now the Secretary of Defense. And he goes, well, I'm not in favor of invoking the uh, Insurrection Act. Well, dude, you don't ha it's not your job to invoke that. It's not your job to do anything but follow your orders and do what you're told. And if you can't do that, then resign. But invoking that act would be clearly something that National Command Authority which would be, you know, the president, headed by the president of the United States, would choose to do. And in fact, we're not going to let cities burn. We're not going to allow ongoing violence against innocent people if the best means at our disposal to stop it and prevent more of it would be using federal assets, which have been done time and time again. Think about the Bonus Army in... Um, 
what was it, 1932? Yeah, after the, after in Washington D.C. Hey, all these, all the the World War One veterans were promised a bonus. They said you're going to get it in 1945. You know, if you're still alive after, you know. But they go through the 20s, and then the Depression hits, and they said, hey, man, I need that money now. I need to feed kids and a wife. Need to feed my family now. Uh, make my payments now. I need that bonus money now. And so they assembled in Washington, D.C. peacefully, and they were protesting it. Well, that that alarmed uh, Franklin Roosevelt so much that he had he had the army go in and clear these guys out. The regular army. This was not National Guard. This was not police. This was the regular army doing this. Uh, the the old guard. What is it? The Third Infantry Regiment, which is stationed in Washington D.C. The guys who do the funerals at Arlington. They do the Tomb of the Unknown and all that. Their other mission is to secure that capital. And it's it's and we're not looking and, and and let me just tell you we're not looking for like the British to come and and kind of march through <laughs> march through Maryland you know they're not coming to the Chesapeake Bay or whatever and and landing and marching to Washington like they did in the War of eighteen twelve it's it's there to protect it from anarchists and and precisely what you saw this last week so you know there is. There are military units that have that kind of a mission. Um, when I was on active duty, hey, they were moving Pershing II missiles to Europe, and there were protesters, and guess what? Regular Army troops were securing those things as they were being transported you know, through the country because there were protesters here and there and everywhere. And I mean, we had face shields and, and all this stuff. Never really had to go into action, but they were ready to do that. So this is not uncommon. This is not unusual for federal troops to to have to, you know, secure the the capital. It has happened. It happened back in the 60s when there were riots in Washington D.C. There's a famous photograph of an M60 machine gun on a tripod that's sitting out in front of the Capitol. I mean, you know, that's just what it is. That's just what it is. And this Esper character, one of the things, if he's, again, this guy's a West Point graduate and is supposedly this big genius, but the one thing he forgot, which he was too stupid, he's obviously too stupid to understand. When you take the, uh, you know, oath of allegiance to the United States, you know, and all the rest of it, he says he's taken that oath several times. He obviously missed the part where it's to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. There is such a thing as a domestic enemy of the Constitution. Now, if Antifa looters, arsonists, and other people bent on violence, if that is not a domestic enemy of the Constitution, then tell me what is, because these people are they are attacking citizens on the street for no other reason than perhaps their race or the fact that they own something. You know, they're, they're attacking people. People are staying in their homes in fear. They're afraid their houses are going to be burned down. If that's not a domestic enemy 
as defined by the Constitution, I'd like to know what is, because I can't understand or think of anything that could possibly be worse than that. So, you know, that's another reason the military will implode. Our leadership lacks resolve. It lacks a lot of intelligence and brain power. And it lacks the ability to stand up and say and do what's right, even in a difficult situation. Even in a very difficult situation. And that's something that's, that's, you know, that's new to us. Usually we have guys who do stand up and do the right things. But you're not seeing them. I haven't been seeing them the last week. I haven't been seeing them at all. And that's one of the reasons I think that uh, we're looking at that. Another reason is we have what we call now, uh, I call it anyway, military royalty. If your daddy was a general, chances are if the son goes into the military or daughter, they can wind up a general too because there's this inside track that has always kind of been there where... You know, and, and, and you think about it, it's logical. If I owe my career to a guy who is a general officer when I was coming up through the ranks, if I become a general and his kid starts coming up through the ranks, even though he's retired, I'm going to kind of want to repay that debt by helping their kid along. That is not the way the military is supposed to work at all. But it does. But it does. And... A lot of people will deny it. A lot of people will say it doesn't happen. But if there's ever an honest analysis done of, well, let's see who is a general, say from World War II, take the general officers and look at their children who've gone in. Their, their children have done exceptionally well by the system. And part of it is because they know the system, but part of it is because the system has accommodated them and it's really promoted people that shouldn't it's really promoted it's it's ignored people that shouldn't and that kind of stuff needs to stop that really does need to stop so those are the reasons i think the u.s military is facing some severe and difficult severe times and difficult challenges until they fix that kind of stuff it's going to get weaker. And right now, I will tell you, uh, we're headed for an implosion because the fact of the matter is decisions that are made just cannot be easily undone. The Take the F-22, best fighter plane in the world. Well, we were supposed to build a lot, much larger number. I think, what did we build, like 30 of them or something? Something really ridiculously small. We were supposed to build like three times that many. Um, now, they, guess what? The production line is shut down, been shut down for years. We can't get any more. So if we want something that's newer and better, we're going to have to design it from the ground up and wait. And it takes sometimes 20 years now to develop. These things are so complex. It isn't like World War II where you can just crank one of these a design out in 60 days and 30 days later you're producing them. No, it's now years and years. And the planning horizons for these things can sometimes be 15 years. So if you don't buy enough of them while they're making them, you're not going to get them. You just can't go back to the store and buy more because there's none to be had. So we have to be very, very careful with our technological advantage. 
we got to make sure we maintain it, but also when we have it, we have to keep it. Uh, they're talking about cutting aircraft carriers. I mean, cutting from 13 to 10 or whatever, whatever the magic numbers are. That's very, very bad. That's very, very bad because that's one of the that's one of those great things we have that nobody else does. But if we keep cutting ours back, we're going to be in dire straits, and you know something will flare up in some part of the world. We'll commit some forces there, and then other areas of the world we won't be able to respond to. So anyway, I've taken a lot of time, but that's kind of what I think about uh, those things. So let's get to the better part of this podcast, which is the questions and answers. And the first question that I got was actually, I got this over email the other day. What are some great gun movies that I can watch that are, you know, available, you know, kind of on DVD or on, on one of these services? And uh, I can think of two right offhand. There are so many of them. And a lot of them, you know, everybody kind of knows. The first one is called Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis, uh, Christopher Walken, and, uh, oh, it's got Bruce Dern in it, it's got a part, and, you know, some of these, it's, it's got the, a lot of character actors that you kind of recognize but don't know their, their, uh, their names, and it's basically a takeoff on A Fistful of Dollars, got, except it's, it's uh, done during Prohibition, Guy shows up in a town. It's got two rival gangs fighting over prohibition, and you know, on and on. And great 1911 scenes, some great revolver scenes, great Thompson scenes, and uh, well worth watching. You know, is it is it a cinematic masterpiece? No, but it's it's better than a lot of the crud that they put out there and and proffer that is. So I, I really like that movie. Bruce Willis does a good job. It does have some weaknesses. Uh, 1911s that are that don't run out of ammo and and also the effects of bullets are exaggerated. But other than that, though, it's great entertainment and really a, a great watch. So that's, that's a good one. Another one I hadn't seen in a long time. It's about 20 years old, at least. Yeah, about 20 years old. And it's called... Um, Enemy at the gates, you know, and it's a lot of it is kind of Soviet propaganda. I, I always, I never tend to believe a lot of the claims that that were made, but it's a good story. Jude Law, um, uh, Joseph Finez, Finez, I guess how he pronounce, pronounces it. Rachel Weiss, you know, the story of Vasily Zaitsev, the little Ural shepherd boy who becomes a sniper in Stalingrad, and and uh, racks up a great big score, and kind of his adventures in doing that. Uh, Ed Harris is in it. I forgot forgot about him. Great, great movie. A lot of action. If you like, especially if you like World War II, they did a very good job with the equipment, the, uh, um, you know, uniforms, rifles, and, you know, a lot of the details were, were really very, very, very well done. And uh, who is it? Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins, the guy who, you know, who framed Roger Rabbit or whatever, um, he plays Nikita Khrushchev, and he does an outstanding job. I mean, he's very, very believable. Um, it's, it's, it's really good entertainment, really good entertainment. Uh, you know, historically, I think it follows the battle pretty well. Whether Zaitsev 
did all the things that they credit him with. I don't know if that's true or if a lot of that is propaganda, but, you know, it was a very, very interesting, and it gives you that insight into kind of that, the dirty, grimy world of the grunt. And we don't get that in a lot of movies. A lot of times these guys are, you know, they're kind of a little too clean and a little too chipper. and you know. But in this movie, you get to see the, their fatigue, their grubby. The, you know, you, can, you just see the really the brutal world that the infantryman lives in, the kill-or-be-killed world. I mean, it is, it is an amazing... An absolutely amazing uh, um, film, and and really well done. Of course, it's got some CGI things, but that, hey, you know you can't find Stukas anymore. So, you know if you're going to have a scene that's got Stukas in it, hey, it's going to be CGI. So, uh, very very good. And and you know the the crossing the uh, when they're crossing the Volga River to get to Stalingrad, you know the reinforcements are trying to get them across. It's very reminiscent of the Saving Private Ryan. Uh, uh, Omaha Beach scene, you know, these guys in the boats, they're getting hit by artillery and the aircraft and everything, and it just, you know, there's, I'm sure that was uh, um, very meticulously researched and, and reflects a lot of the reality that was there. So that's a, uh, that's really a fundamentally excellent movie, and so the, I would uh, recommend both of those uh, without hesitation. Another movie that, of course, is a, a great one is Public Enemies, Johnny Depp. Uh, I like everything about the movie, except it kind of gets the historical timeline messed up and does some compressions. Um, you know, Babyface Nelson was not killed at Little Bohemia in the vicinity of there. He's killed somewhere else, actually. And uh, Pretty Boy Floyd actually outlived Dillinger and wasn't, wasn't killed by the FBI until later. So, you know, the, the, the history has been somewhat convoluted, but it tries to tell the essence of the story. I would also believe that, that Johnny Depp was a little too suave for John Dillinger. My, my favorite Dillinger portrayal is the movie Dillinger, which was made in 73 or 74. John Milnius directed it. And Warren Oates, I think, was a much better Dillinger, kind of a rough-around-the-edge uh, a little more ignorant, not not movie star suave and kind of cool like Johnny Depp is, but it's still a great movie. A lot of great Thompson scenes, a lot of great uh, scenes of you know how those banks were held up and the kind of kind of weapons they used and, and everything. The clothing and everything else is meticulous. Uh, the acting is excellent. So I think it's a a first rate a first rate movie if you can accept the fact that it's not exactly a true story. So, uh, definitely, uh, those are those are the ones that are uh, uh, three of them that just pop to mind. Everybody knows a lot of the other great ones, but these were great. Uh, another movie I enjoy, and it's it's kind of a gun movie, kind of a gun movie. But I saw uh, the War Wagon with John Wayne and Kirk Douglas. I mean, what a great western! It it. Always, unlike a lot of westerns, it, it, it doesn't drag, and it doesn't really become a morality play. Um, it's it's absolutely a lot of action, and some very cool guns. Not only do you have you know the usual Winchester, the usual Winchester ninety twos, and the uh, um, uh, 
called single action armies. Not only do you have that, but you also have a Gatling gun in it, which you don't see in too many westerns. You don't really see that. And I don't know if they ever had anything like the war wagon, which was this kind of iron-plated wagon with a with a turret on top with a Gatling gun. I don't know if anything like that ever existed. But I suppose it could have, and it's it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's a great movie. Um, and the interplay between John Wayne and Kirk Douglas really makes it a very entertaining movie to to watch and and uh so that's a that's an outstanding outstanding movie uh for the last one i'll talk about as an old movie was um the old jimmy stewart standby winchester 73 that movie moves along pretty well too and the beautiful part about that is they actually use a winchester 73 and so it's kind of an authentic gun it was made in 1950 so i'm assuming that was before there were any reproductions. So there, the Winchester 73 they use there is a genuine Winchester 73 and not something that was made later. So it's it's the right model. It's very cool. And uh, it kind of follows the, the track of this rifle and the, uh, the, the kind of the riflery of two brothers, one who's a murderer and the other who's a, uh, um, you know, the good guy trying to avenge the murders. So great movies. Uh, I realize everybody's kind of coming out of COVID now, but, you know, if you're looking for something to watch, those are the three, those are some of the ones I would recommend, definitely. Okay, our next question is, what was the 22 Spitfire, and why wasn't it successful? Okay, the 22 Spitfire was was kind of something that was in the background and it kind of made a splash when it came out it came out in the early 60s and what this really was was simply this uh 30 caliber m1 carbine necked down to 22 caliber 224 take 224 bullets a 40 or a 50 grainer um it would pop it out at about anywhere from 26 to like 2800 feet per second the lighter bullet went faster so 40 grain at 2,800 feet per second. Uh, everything else except for the barrel was was pretty much M1 carbine. You know, same magazines, same everything else. And, uh, you know, there was some sort of interest in it. It really kind of came after the 5.56 was, was already been introduced. So there was no way it was going to dethrone it. It had, it had inferior... Uh, performance to the 5.56. The 5.56 was throwing a 55 grain bullet at 3,200 feet per second. And essentially the M1 carbine is just not a long-range gun. So um, in fact 30 caliber M1 is a better cartridge to use in an M1 carbine than a 22 Spitfire because it, it you know at the ranges you can effectively use an M1 carbine due to its sights trigger and everything else uh the, the 30 caliber cartridge is better it throws out a 110 grain bullet at 1800 feet per second much better close range so there was never any real use there was since the, the m1 carbine is not a long range gun kind of the cartridge that can have a flatter trajectory at long range wasn't particularly useful and no and and you've seen it you know the 222 remington 222 Remington Magnum, you know, all these 219 Donaldson Wasp and, and 
219B or 218B, all the all those 22 Hornet, all of these 22 caliber cartridges have, have basically just been, you know, they've been gone for decades because the 223, because of ammo and, and uh, other availability uh, of, of components and everything else, components, rifles, everything, has absolutely put those things you know, into the antique column. There are still a few of those rifles around, but you don't see them very often, and, you know, it all becomes kind of a custom proposition to load for some of those, if they were ever standardized in the first place. So, 223 Remington was just not going to be dethroned by the 22 Spitfire. The other thing was, nobody was making M1 carbines then. I, you know, I realize there have been a few commercial copies, and it could have theoretically happened, but even now, you know, you, you go to Auto Ordnance or this inland company, which are making these newer M1 carbines, there's no interest in a, a 22 Spitfire because, you know, it, the ammunition is unobtainium. You'd have, it'd be a custom loading deal. Why? Just to get a 22 centerfire M1 carbine. It's just not worth it. Nobody, nobody really, there's nobody in the market, that, just because it's a neat idea doesn't mean that it's a practical idea or a desirable firearm for a large number of people. So that's why it was never, that's what it was, and that's why it was never successful. Okay, this one actually came from my spouse. Um, I recently discovered and signed up for, it, it used to be called Small Bore Bullseye Target, whatever, whatever it was called. Um, it's now called Precision Pistol Shooting. And it's just the you know the NRA bullseye shooting course. It's just been renamed to make it sound make it sound more cool. Uh, the word bullseye is kind of a you know very old you know that's a 40s 50s term and you know precision is kind of a new term meaning accuracy. So I recently found a league and signed up and I broke out my old high standard uh, uh, citation. And here's the here's the story behind that. So the question is, what do I like about it? Why do I think it's valuable? Why would I participate in it? But some background is, uh, when I was in college, and this was a long time ago, studying as an undergraduate degree and being an ROTC cadet, um, the ROTC where I went where I went to ROTC had three programs. They had Army, Navy, Air Force, and the Navy included the Marine Corps options, which were the guys who they, they went through Naval ROTC, but would um, compete for and be selected as Marine Corps officers. So we had to try service there, try service. It was very good. And cadets, we all liked each other. You know, it was, it was very good. There wasn't really any inter-service rivalry. It was, it was all pretty cool. Well, they were going to have a rifle team and a pistol team. Okay. So uh, in anticipation of being on the pistol team, and I thought there would be open tryouts for both, um, and because I'd always wanted one, I purchased a high standard trophy uh actually it's a citation and the difference between it citation trophy whatever it is i think it's a trophy and it's it's got some like a gold plated trigger so you know if you get sweaty it doesn't do anything and it's got some you know little cosmetic things gold plated slide release it was simply done to you know kind of give it a little bit of uh, uh style and also to to make it a little more um kind of corrosion proof if you will so I bought one of these in anticipation because I wanted to shoot pistol as opposed to three-position rifle. 
And uh, of course, the the geniuses that were in charge of this whole thing decided that the Navy and Air Force would do pistol, and the Army would do rifle. So. To make a long story short, they didn't have open tryouts, so there were two groups of pissed off people. One were the army people like me, who wanted to shoot pistol, and the other were the Marine Corps options in the Naval ROTC who wanted to shoot rifle. They're stuck with pistol, we're stuck with, with rifle. Had we had open tryouts, we people could have tried out and could have gotten and done what they wanted. So, as it was, me and a Winchester Model 52 whatever it was, 52D or whatever it was, shot rifle, and these other guys with, I don't even know what pistols they used, um, you know, Smith Wesson Model 41s or something, they got to shoot pistol, and that's just how it was, you know, that's just, that's the deal, you're stuck with it. Well, I'd purchased this high standard pistol, and I, I didn't use the thing for 20 years. And then where I used to live in California, there was, um, a gun club that, you know, they had an indoor range and they shot at 50 feet and one of the things they did was rimfire, um, bullseye shooting. I joined that and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I said, I'm going to use this pistol. I just want to try this, you know, because I didn't get a chance to do it in college and uh, life intervened and, and I didn't have any kind of chance to do it for until this opportunity came along. So I did it and uh, I really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it, did it for several years uh, but then I had to relocate for job reasons, and, you know, high standard goes back into the safe and, you know, comes out once every <laughs> once every three years to just get function fired. So, you know, we're there. And fortunately, I kind of found, stumbled across this league, and I was it's, it's really great because I was just lamenting maybe two months ago how much I enjoyed shooting it, because before that, I hadn't really done a lot of one-handed shooting, you know, I had, I'm, I'm a right-hander, and I'd always done two, two-hand kind of combat shooting, and I really didn't have the opportunity to do that, well, once I kind of got into it, I realized it improved my other shooting greatly, and it, it's just a cool skill to have, to be able to shoot one-handed, a lot of people can't do that, because nowadays, you know, I don't see anybody shooting their Glock one-handed from a traditional stance, so... Uh, it's it's not something that a lot of people do. So it's a lot of fun. Why do I think it's a great thing to do? Well, it teaches you precision and it holds you accountable accountable for your shots. Um, you know, the target don't lie. And it's not like you're ringing steel or just kind of shooting at a target that you can tear down. You know, a flyer has consequences. <laughs> and if you pull a shot off the target... You, you have consequences. It's, it's something that doesn't get scored and all that. So I like that. It, it, helps, it helps the discipline of shooting. It helps, it helps keep you kind of focused and helps the discipline of the shooting. Plus you meet a lot of really cool people. There are a lot of cool people who do it. And it's done with a lot of cool guns. Very, very cool guns. The, um, back in California when I did this, the, the gun of choice by the real cognoscenti and also the well-heeled uh, shooters was uh, a Pardini. I think it was called the Pardini SP-1 or the Pardini SP or something. And it had a um, it had a grip that you almost put on like a glove. You know, it circular wood circled around your hand and all this. And, you know, that was, that was a very cool, very cool deal. Optical sights were just kind of coming in then. 
but I, I chose to shoot my high standard old school with the sights it came with, and uh, I really enjoyed it, and I really progressed, and I really did, it really helped my pistol shooting, and my scores just radically improved, which I really, really liked. Um, at the, uh, the other gun that's, that I saw used back then was the Ruger. You know, the bull barrel Ruger was also a very popular gun. Nice part about the Ruger is it has good, you can just go buy magazines for it. Sometimes with these guns like the High Standard, if you buy even a High Standard magazine, you have to have the feed lips kind of adjusted a little bit, meaning bending them so the thing feeds right, which is kind of a maddening thing to do. Some, I actually had to take it to a gunsmith and have him do it. So I have four good magazines and one magazine that doesn't do so well. But to get back to the main point, uh, as I joined the league here, I found that they actually even had more variety of guns, which I like, and it's, it's a little more laid back. And uh, there's actually a class where they uh, in, in the uh, league where people can shoot two-handed if they want. I still elect to shoot one-handed. But you see everything from just kind of the standard model Ruger, the non-bull barrel one, to, you know, the beautiful Smith & Wesson uh, 22 caliber revolver. I think it's a Model 17 or Model 18. I don't know which one. Uh, to, you know, some very unique, you know, pistols. Some of them I couldn't even identify. I didn't I didn't want to go there. and It's, it's not a gun show, so uh, I didn't want to disturb anybody. But there were some guns there that uh, uh, I hadn't really seen before. And some kind of, you know, all, the, all these things with little add-ons and things. So it was a lot of fun. I enjoy it, and it gets me out, and it gets me meeting people. And that's really the, you know, one of the one of the best things about shooting. No matter what your discipline is, hey, you get to meet other people. And I don't really compete against other people. I like to do well because I like to do better than I did the week before. That to me is success, not whether or not I'm at the top of the standings or the bottom of the standings or somewhere in the middle. It's did I do better than the week before? Am I showing improvement? Was there a mistake I may have made last week that I did not make this week? And are my groups getting better? And so, um, you know, that those that to me is the, the, the essence of it. That's the fun of it. That's the benefit of it. And so I, I'm really kind of hoping that uh, maybe in some way that'll make kind of a comeback. Uh, everything is so so combat oriented now that that's fine, but there's still a lot of goodness to be seen and and uh, uh, taken in with the, the classic pistol disciplines. And uh, you know, and it's not like. It's not like, you know, some of the classic rifle disciplines, the participation's going down. And service rifle, I don't know where that's going. I think it's just going to become less popular and be just another sport where that used to be the main sport. But I think that there's some uh, um, other stuff that's going on that is very, very cool. And this is one of them. And I like that traditional... You know, NRA, bullseye, the discipline, the commitment to to trying to improve yourself. That's what I really like about it. Okay, and here we are at our last question. After seeing these riots in the last week, how should a responsible citizen arm his or herself? Okay, well, the first thing, the first thing is that you arm yourself with is situational awareness 
And what, and you go back to those basic planning things of what is the most likely thing to happen and what is the most dangerous thing to me that can happen. And you take steps to mitigate those things. It isn't, well, I'm going to go into the middle of a riot, but I'm going to be wearing body armor and a helmet and, and uh, carrying the, the double-barreled AR that they sell. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that thing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not being where the bad people, where bad things are happening. And fortunately, they're pretty easy to predict. Um, you know, it's going to be downtown areas where they can scurry around like rats and destroy things and then vanish down side streets. So it's kind of in the cities. And it's also around, you know, places they can loot, whether it's in local neighborhoods or it's an upscale shopping area like I spoke about earlier. So avoiding those two places, especially during the hours of darkness, is is the biggest thing you can do. That is the biggest and best thing you can do. Um, I would also be wary during daylight hours. It, it seems that these things kind of gather steam during the day then explode during the night because it's easier to escape under the cover of darkness and and it's harder to see under the cover of darkness and and they use that as a way to cover some of the nefarious acts um, other things that can possibly happen are you know hey you're just driving near there and you don't really know what's happening and, and your car is stopped and they bash the windows and drag you out uh, all those kind of things can happen and that's where you have to say what are the, what are the most likely things that can happen if I'm caught up in that and what are the worst things that can happen? Um, I would tell you, I will tell you that, uh, first of all, is a good high-capacity handgun. And this is one of those areas where I think capacity matters in a handgun. Because you could have multiple, if not a lot of assailants. But if you can put out some, if you can put out some rounds quickly, you've got a chance of, of at least giving them pause, if not dissipating them. So that, that's really good. And you really don't want to run out of ammo or have your slide locked back because you fired six or seven shots to disperse this large group of people who are trying to bash the windows of, of your car in or trying to trap you inside a building or something else. So that, that matters. So for a handgun, I say this is one of the times when high capacity is a very, very good thing. The next thing is clearly you need a rifle, a high-capacity rifle, and, uh, you know, uh, the intermediate cartridges are really, really good at this. Now, if you're defending, trying to defend property from even people who are trying to, you know, bash a uh, vehicle in through the front windows and loot the place or whatever, then you, then a battle rifle cartridge uh, might be a better option. But essentially, you know, that it's, it's the same basic stuff. It's the the AR with the 30-round magazine, the high-capacity pistol, and, you know, even more importantly is, do you have some people who you can rely on? Are there family members who you can arm? Are there business associates or some neighbors, anybody else? Can you arm these people, and can you all work together as in enough of a team so that you're kind of covering each other so it's not one person against the hordes. I think those are the important things to know. The actual equipment, now whether it's, you choose shotguns or, or, or rifles, 
all that matters, I think, less in some cases. If you've got five or six people with shotguns, hey, that, that's going to be very formidable. And if there's a rifle or two mixed in, you know, it's so much the better. It's, it's, about, it's, it's about not trying to be that, that... When you're that solo person, that's when you can, they can mob you and just and basically do anything. You saw the fool that tried to defend a uh, store with a sword... And you would think, well, you know, at least he would, you know, you chop off two or three, chop off two or three hands or arms or something, and the people would go back. But instead, he just got mobbed, and then he got got beaten almost to death. So um, that's what you have to worry about. And and really, uh, unless you're in a protected position where they can't physically reach you, you're going to have a very very hard time. They will, they can overcome you. The worst case, they can overcome you, grab your weapon, and then you're defenseless. So having, having some people who you're working with, at least as a, a loose-knit team that can cover each other, having a safe haven or a safe place to go where they cannot physically reach you, some of those things are just as important as the firearms. But the best advice I can give you is be where they are not and avoid them at all possible costs. And uh, have a plan. I mean, uh, they talk a lot of smack about coming to the suburbs or coming to small towns. But I'll tell you right now, I don't think they're going to do it. You know, in the town I live in, there are a lot of people who get up at 3 in the morning, drive out to the country, hike for two hours, go to a deer stand, and wait six hours for something to shoot. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, they hunt game. That's what they do. Those kind of people are not going to be the sort of you know, just kind of hand-wringing, pearl-clutching um, population that's going to be taken advantage of and is not going to fight for their own homes. They're not going to allow their homes or their businesses to be destroyed by, you know, out-of-town miscreants. So, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of thing that uh, uh, I would look at is make a few friends, make sure that you have some some weapons that make sense and they're probably weapons you already have anyway and then uh you know have the mindset to use it be on alert have the mindset to use it um you know it could be a long hot summer these riots may only be the first act in a drama play and i go back to my first comments on this podcast I don't believe in coincidences. And when I look at 19, 1992 and I look at today and I look at the elections and who's running for re-election and all the rest of it, you know, there could be there could be some additional stuff down the road. There could be some additional stuff down the road. So it's best to get ready now because we have not seen the end of this. Well, that's it for another edition of Old School Guns. You can always uh, leave comments on Podbean. You can also leave um, leave some comments on my email, which is kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. And we'd love to hear from you. And again, if you can always hit the like or follower button, whatever whatever buttons you can you can do or subscribe to us. However you can do that, we sure do appreciate it. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.